0: Hello and welcome to Alice's Everywhere. Today we will read and discuss... Wait a minute. The reading part is over. We finished Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. We finished Through the Looking Glass and what Alice found there. Plenty of discussion remains, however, in terms of both books, and today we continue our Looking Glass Wrap-Up because I still have a plethora of points to make about Alice too, which is how Lewis Carroll referred to it when it was still a work in progress, by the way. Alice with the Roman numeral 2 next to it. Very much like the movie sequels of today. Which I guess would make it Alice the second then? Alice 2? I don't know. You may recall I started Looking Glass in kind of a hurry before we were really done wrapping up Alice's Adventures in Wonderland because the Alice Through the Looking Glass movie came out in May and I thought, well, I better get this Looking Glass show on the road, by golly, as Looking Glass is going to be in the news and there should be a, a renewed interest in the book and everyone is just going to be looking glass crazy. Of course, the movie totally tanked here in the States. But it did fare better internationally. I actually just checked the box office receipts to make sure that's true. The movie cost $170 million to make. As of August 10th, 2016, the domestic box office is a little shy of $77 million, but the international box office stands at 212. Maybe that international gross helps explain all my Chinese and Australian listeners. Hey, a shout-out to my Chinese and Australian listeners, by the way. I see you in my podcast statistics. I know you're out there. Thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. Now, spread the word to your friends and relatives in Europe, would you? I swear, that entire continent has decided not to listen to my podcast. But I digress. As I was saying, I was in such a hurry to jump through the looking glass that I did not do nearly as much research ahead of time as I did for Wonderland. I think I covered it up pretty well week to week, mostly by babbling about the Beatles. But I returned to the University of Southern California's Doheny Library recently to comb through some books in the Special Collections Department so that I can bring you looking-glass insights you can't get anywhere else. It was a very successful trip. For example, that little Alice Two tidbit I just shared with you came from a wonderful book written by Illinois State University English professor Jan Susina, entitled The Place of Lewis Carroll in Children's Literature. That book was a gold mine. I learned so much. I never know exactly what I'm in for when I go to visit the special collections because you have to request that the books be pulled ahead of time. So based on whatever descriptions are available, which sometimes isn't much, I request maybe six to eight books to be pulled and then I spend the afternoon there. Sometimes I flip through and realize pretty quickly that a certain book is not going to be much use to me personally, for example... This last trip, one of the books I had pulled was Semiotics and Linguistics in Alice's Worlds, edited by Rachel Fordyce and Carla Morello. And pretty much the only thing I got out of it is that in French, Humpty Dumpty is boule-boule. Or maybe boule-boule. In Sweden, he's billy-lilly. And in Finland, he's hillering-lillering, which is very hard to say. hillering lil lil lillering The only outright disappointment from this last trip to USC was a book called Lewis Carroll's Through the Looking Glass Decoded by Abraham Edelson, M.D. I saw that title and thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to be spending all day on this book. Maybe I'll want to track it down online and buy it. It's going to be that essential to my understanding of Through the Looking Glass, and it turned out. You know, I'm just going to read my notes to you that I jotted down at the library. <clears throat> Holy Christmas! This book is entirely about finding hidden Jewish meanings in the Alice books. Hatta is Moses. Jabberwocky is a code name for a famous Russian rabbi. The overall explanation is English is written left to right and Hebrew is written right to left. Therefore, Looking Glass is all about Judaism. Not sure what his justification for Wonderland is. I can't even. 80 some pages. That's enough. So that's the end of my notes. So, Through the Looking Glass Decoded did not turn out to be the cornucopia of Carolean disclosures I was hoping for. And honestly, I don't mean to be flip about Abraham Edelson, MD, or his theory. He came up with an idea, he found what he thinks was a ton of evidence, and he wrote a book about it. That's a huge accomplishment. I haven't written a book. There's definitely room for everybody's ideas when it comes to the Alice books, or anything else for that matter, but that doesn't mean I'm going to subscribe to everybody's ideas. Certainly not. Okay, now, for the real reason I'm going on and on about the special collections at USC. Remember a few episodes back, during the It's My Own Invention, Chapter 8, we talked about how it is widely accepted that the White Knight character is Lewis Carroll. I told you how I had read that an author named Jeffrey Stern in 1990 wrote about Lewis Carroll actually signing something, the White Knight, thus at long last confirming that Lewis Carroll did indeed represent himself in Through the Looking Glass as a White Knight. I also said I did not have access to the piece that Jeffrey Stern wrote because it was in a 1990 newsletter of the UK Lewis Carroll Society. So I couldn't confirm whether he saw this signature in person or if he just heard about it or what. Well, turns out that the Cassidy collection of Lewis Carroll works at USC has all the newsletters from the Lewis Carroll Society. All of them! The Lewis Carroll Society of the UK. They're kind of an overachieving lot. They, They actually have three newsletters. One that is full of scholarly stuff. One that recounts their meetings and goings on and one that is all reviews of publications about Lewis Carroll. The scholarly journal is now called the Carolian, but back in 1990, it was called Jabberwocky, and I am going to quote Jeffrey Stearns' 1990 summer-slash-autumn Jabberwocky article to you right now. It's entitled, Carroll Identifies Himself at Last, or A Problem Solved and a Puzzle Posed. Since the Alices are clearly full of real people, Then just which one of them is Carol himself? The usual answer, as Martin Gardner annotates, is the white knight from Looking Glass. And then Jeffrey Stern goes on and and quotes the same thing I quoted from Martin Gardner a few weeks ago, about why Carol is probably the white knight. Then he goes on, The definitive answer has, I am pleased to report, now been found. And what is more, the confession is in Carol's own handwriting. But some background first it still strikes me as extraordinary, despite being a rare book trader for 20 years and a Carroll student for 25, that original material can still come onto the market, having been hidden away for the best part of a century. Even more extraordinary is the survival of a Carroll archive, autograph letters, and presentation copies of his books sent to a particular family. The most notable recent one was the Kitchen Collection, but that now has been sadly split up. The family archive that I have recently taken into my stock and sold entire to a private collector belonged until recently to the descendants of the original recipients, the Butler family. The collection comprises thirteen letters from Carol to various members of the Butler family, mostly, of course, the girls, and six inscribed presentation copies of various of his books. Some of the letters had been published in Hatch's selection from the letters of Lewis Carroll to his child friends in 1933, and republished, false transcriptions and all, in Cohen's letters of Lewis Carroll in 1979. Read as an entity, the letters can be seen to trace the rise and fall of one of Carroll's attempts to befriend a little girl in her family. The letters that Hatch was not allowed to print are those in which Carroll attempts to justify himself to a clearly reluctant, not to say bellicose, mother. A full note on the Butler family will be found in Cohen's letter footnotes, but as well as the letters and presentation copies of Carol's books, there was also one unique additional item. My description of this item, as in the catalog of the collection, was as follows. And I apologize that my reading of this is so incredibly awkward. I'm reading it off a picture on my cell phone, which is stupid. Anyway, from the White Knight. A unique hand-drawn board made by Carroll himself for an unspecified game. The board measuring seven and a half by eight and a half inches on heavy card, with the corners neatly trimmed. On the verso, Carroll has written, "Olive Butler, from the White Knight, November 21st, 1892," with a set of loose counters—eleven white and eleven red—and white ones with inked crosses on one side, contained in a small post office-supplied reg- registered envelope addressed in Carroll's hand. Messrs. Witherby & Co., 326 High Holborn, London. An extraordinary and unique survival of an unrecorded board game clearly devised by Carroll for the amusement of his child friends, the Butler Sisters. Carroll was completely captivated by parlor games, per se. Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass were, of course, structured around playing cards and chess, and he used his natural logical inventiveness to create a number of new ones. He then goes on to describe some games that Carroll invented that we will talk about at a later date, and he ends with, It is particularly evocative that Carroll has dedicated the board from the White Knight, since this confirms that fact that he identified himself as this character. So at last, we know for certain that Carroll did portray himself as the White Knight. But, as often with things Carolian, just as one question is answered, another is posed, what on earth was the game that the White Knight was playing? So there you go. This game board was a totally new discovery, made by Jeffrey Stern when he bought a collection of Lewis Carroll keepsakes, I guess, directly from the Butler family? No idea if any of that was actually authenticated, by the way. Now, of course, I am all excited about the fact that we have what seems like confirmation in Lewis Carroll's own handwriting that he was a white knight. Well, I imagine most of you listening are more interested in this saga of Lewis Carroll and the Butler family. It certainly sounds like quite the soap opera. Read as an entity, the letters can be seen to trace the rise and fall of one of Carol's attempts to befriend a little girl and her family. And then there's the letters that were not allowed to be published. Aye, 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 And if some of you are sitting there, perhaps in your car, or at your desk at work, or maybe on the elliptical at the gym, and you're wondering, why the heck is he trying so hard to be friends with a little girl and her family? Well, that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? I am acutely aware, from the correspondence I've received from you guys, which I always appreciate, by the way, that my audience is not homogenous when it comes to Carrollian knowledge and lore. There are people listening who, through the Alice's Everywhere podcast, just read the Alice books for the very first time. There are Alice fans who have read it a dozen times, but tune in because maybe they didn't know the very interesting backstory behind the writing of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland or they just want to pick up some new little fun facts, and then there are actual Victorian scholars listening. Honestly, I'm not sure why they listen, because they probably already know everything that comes out of my mouth. Maybe they're tuning in to see if I get anything wrong. Maybe that's it. Or maybe they're just happy. There's a podcast devoted entirely to one of their favorite authors, however pedestrian the presentation. My overall point here is I am very conscious of the fact that some of you know a whole lot about Lewis Carroll, and his many child friends, and that some of you were completely unaware that author Lewis Carroll had any child friends until you heard from me about Alice Little back on episode two of Alice's Everywhere. Lewis Carroll and his child friends, it's a complex topic that many people have very strong opinions about. It definitely merits its own episode, maybe two. When we do talk about it in detail, I will attempt to be fair and balanced in how I present the available information to you. Now, just the fact that I, one person, will be picking and choosing what I present to you means it's not going to be completely impartial. You'll be seeing the information through my eyes. But unless you want to give up all your other hobbies and socializing with family and friends so that you can read every letter, journal, biography, and and opinion piece that I have read over the last 20 years or so, I don't know how else we're going to do this. And honestly, I think... I am kind of uniquely suited to present the topic of Lewis Carroll and his child friends to a wide audience because I feel like I'm one of the few people with a working knowledge of the topic who doesn't have a strong opinion on the matter. So many individuals seem 100% certain that his relationships with children were completely innocent, Then an equal number of people seem equally certain that his relationships with children were inappropriate or much, much worse. I have no idea. The more I research it, the more uncertain I am. Do I hope it was innocent? Sure. These books have meant so much to me for almost my entire life, since I had memory, really. But I wasn't there. I have no idea. In conclusion, we'll definitely talk about Lewis Carroll and his child friends in depth at a later date, the aftertime, let's say. I have a feeling it will be my most listened to episode. What do you think? By the by, I keep using the phrase child friends because that's a phrase Lewis Carroll himself used in letters and diaries and whatnot, and also because I'm not really sure what else to call them. Well, that got heavy. Let's go back through the Looking glass, shall we? Where it's all feasting and fun, kind of. I know, let's do a segment of things I should have told you. This is when I go back and tell you things about particular chapters that would have been really useful to tell you at the time, but I just didn't, probably because, as we have discussed... I was in such a hurry to get Looking Glass going." A lot of them are from chapter one, for some reason. You'll recall pretty much all that happens in chapter one is Alice talks to her cats, she goes through the Looking Glass, into Looking Glass House, she interacts a bit with the chess pieces, which are now alive, and then she reads Jabberwocky. Now when Alice is chatting with her cats, she is winding up a ball of worsted. If you don't know what that is, or if you did not, go look at the illustrations on the accompanying blog post on aliceiseverywhere.com. Worsted is a type of yarn. And I said it correctly. Worsted is one of two correct pronunciations for that word. Not really important to your understanding of the story. Just a a small victory on my part that I pronounce it right. While Alice is winding up the worsted after Kitty unravels it all over the floor, there's a passage that I find exceptionally curious. I will read it to you now. And then she scrambled back into the armchair, taking the kitten and the worsted with her, and began winding up the ball again. But she didn't get on very fast, as she was talking all the time, sometimes to the kitten and sometimes to herself. Kitty sat very demurely on her knee, pretending to watch the progress of the winding, and now and then putting out one paw and gently touching the ball, as if it would be glad to help if it might. Okay, so Kitty sat very demurely on her knee, pretending to watch the progress of the winding. Does anyone else find that strange? That the cat is pretending? We're not through the looking glass yet. This is just a normal, non-talking cat. The other characterizations of the cats in this chapter involve like ifs and suppositions. As if it would be glad to help if it might. No doubt feeling that it was all for its own good. I just find it so curious that it's not as if the kitten were pretending. He's just plain pretending. Kitten was pretending. She was being duplicitous pretending to watch the ball of worsted being wound up, but really she was thinking about, what, tuna fish? Chess moves? Plotting her escape out the window? I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into this. Maybe cats pretend all the time. I haven't had one since I was a kid, and my mom pretended to be allergic to it and then sent it to a farm in the country, whatever that really means. Alice uses the phrase Wednesday week at one point. She tells Kitty... I'm saving up all your punishments for Wednesday week. Wednesday week means a week from Wednesday. One could also say Wednesday fortnight to mean two weeks from Wednesday. If you Google Wednesday week, the first result is an American rock band called Wednesday week that was in existence from 1983 to 1990. The rest of the page one results are about, get this, two different songs, both released in 1980, called Wednesday week. What are the odds? One is from an Irish band called The Undertones. The other is by none other than Elvis Costello and The Attractions. And if I'm interpreting the lyrics correctly, both songs are rather similar in tone. Apparently the protagonists have some sweet, sweet lady loves that they are pretty sure will leave them by Wednesday week. So obviously Wednesday week must be normal, everyday British speak. If you are wondering, yes, the Sandy Turner phrase may be used for any day of the week. For example, the phrase Thursday week is used several times in Peter Pan. So why two songs called Wednesday week? Were Wednesdays all the rage in 1980s? Was one songwriter looking over the other's shoulder? I'm just dying to know. Peter Pan, side note. I've been asked on a few occasions if I am planning any podcasts besides Alice's Everywhere in order to share other fanciful flights of literature, such as Peter Pan by J.M. Barrie or maybe The Wonderful Wizard of Oz by L. Frank Baum the answer is no. No plans. I've read them, I like them, but I simply don't have the breadth of knowledge of those books that I have for the Alice books and for Lewis Carroll. As we've discussed today, I certainly do additional research for these podcasts, but I am also drawing on decades of Alice factoids and opinions and celluloids stored in my brain, and I just do not have that for The Wizard of Oz or Peter Pan someone would like to pay me to research those books and present them on a podcast, I would quit my regular paying job in a second. But unfortunately spending the hours and hours to do it on my own simply is not feasible. You know what? I think I'm gonna stop there because the next thing that happens in the story is that Alice comes across Jabberwocky, and that's practically a whole episode in itself. Why don't y'all come back now and we'll continue our chapter by chapter wrap up of Through the Looking Glass. Please feel free to email me any questions or comments about the book at heather at or use the contact form on the website or find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr. I'm on Pinterest and Google Plus too, but Pinterest isn't as conducive to conversation and I'm not sure anyone in the world is on Google Plus but me. But if I don't see you online, talk soon.